Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Dan, in case you, you don't know me. Pastor Randy, our uh, senior pastor, has gone through the, the middle of this week. Um, my role here right now, again, maybe you know this, but maybe you don't, is, uh, again, according to the back of the bulletin, let me check what is my role, church planting pastor. Um, and uh, maybe you're hoping that, boy, I hope he has a great, juicy update for us before he preaches. I don't. Um, you know, back at the annual meeting back in November, I shared about, oh, there's, you know, we're thinking about meeting places. There's two potential places we're looking at. And one of those is a closed door, not surprising. And there's one we're still working through. And so we may have some news on that soon. We may not. Um, so again, might be a nice juicy update for you sometime soon. But right now we're just, we just have a core group of people who are part of this church plant, who are, um, kind of coming together to be committed to each other and getting sent off, right? It's not this church plant plan that we have as a church. It's not just to put me and my family onto a little raft and push us away and wish us well. Um, it's to put a whole group of us on a raft and push us away and wish us well. But actually, that's not true. There'll be a tethered rope. There's going to be a strong relationship between these churches, a continued uh, shared elder board and budget and all sorts of things. And I, I, this is not the time to kind of go into that. So I, I, one, I welcome all sorts of questions you may have, not right now, like raised hand, but at some point, questions. Feel free to ask me questions about this um, if you're not clear on certain things. Um, but also, if you really wanted to be a part of this core group, you're interested in being part of this core group, that will get put on that raft and pushed away uh, here as uh, kind of spring comes around. Um, talk to me or come down to this, uh, this Sunday school class that's meeting downstairs. It's not only for people who want to get on that raft and get pushed away, this Sunday school class downstairs as we go through the Lord's Prayer. But um, that's a great chance, if you're a part of that class, to be kind of growing together as part of the core group. So that, that's an invitation uh, to you. Just, uh, and it's, I guess, an update on our church plant plans. But as we transition to the introduction for the sermon, uh, this is now the transition, it's not a good one. I'm just going to let you know, I like airports. All right, this is the, now I'm on the introduction part. I like airports. This might not be a controversial opinion to have, um, but I suspect it's not a universal opinion. Um, but I think I'm in that middle spot with airports where I've flown just enough to feel comfortable at an airport. Um, I've flown domestic, small airports, big airports, international, right? I feel comfortable at pretty much any airport. Uh, like I, oh, I've done this before. I know what I can do. But I haven't flown so much that it become a drudgery, right? Those are kind of the two things that would make people not like airports. They're very confused and intimidating, or they're just, oh, I hate spending all my time here. They're soulless, and I just, bleh, I don't like, I'm kind of in that middle spot where I like airports. And one of my favorite things about airports is just this phenomenon of all of these people who are going to all these different destinations, kind of being together. So I'll be at my gate, and I'm flying to wherever. I'm flying to Chicago, so I'm at gate 816. And right next to me, uh, I, I just stood in line at Dunkin' Donuts for coffee with someone who's going to get in line at a gate to go to Baltimore or to Toronto, or maybe if we're getting real exotic, they're going to Reykjavik or Tokyo, right? But for this moment, I'm washing my hands in the bathroom next to someone who our worlds are now going to go all these different directions. I'm standing in line next to this person who's going to suddenly be on the other side of the world for me. So it's just, I just enjoy sitting at my gate and looking at, oh, I'm going to Sioux Falls, and this person's going to, you know, Minneapolis. This person's going to Walla Walla, Washington. Right? They're just going all these places. And um, 
Just to, what is their day like? Where, is they, where are they going? What is going to happen to them? Um, what, what's it like to fly to Tampa, Florida? Again, wherever, choose your location. Um, and every gate, though, this is the, the obvious point, every gate or where there is a plane has a destination. Right? There's never a line of people gathering at a gate in which the sign just says, you know, American Airlines, flight, whatever, going to nowhere. Right? There's never an announcement for now boarding, flight, you know, United 763. It's a flight whose destination we'll figure out once we get going. Right? That's, that's never happening. There's always a known destination for these flights. And our lives are kind of like that. Our lives have a destination. We all are going somewhere. Sometimes we call this our our end. Or if you like a good philosophical word, a Greek word, a telos. We have some created purpose. A telos is a really good word for that. Uh, Illustrate what a telos is. That we each have this created purpose. Everything in creation has an end for which it was created. I think we can think about it this way. Yeast, what is the telos of yeast? Pizza, right? It exists, not as pizza, that's how it starts, but it exists to become pizza crust. Therefore, pizza is the telos of yeast. So Sometimes we call this end, this telos, our purpose, our consummation. In our call to worship, worship passage that John read for us at the very beginning in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. Peter called it the result of our life. I'll just, I'll just read the end of that call to worship passage for you real quick. He, he reminded us that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result. Right, where's it going? It's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some planes fly to Sioux Falls. Some planes fly to Reykjavik. The Christian life, the life of faith, flies to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter taught us in 1 Peter 1. And that's actually what our psalm this morning, Psalm 150, that's our passage for this morning. That's what it wants us to see. That our lives are grieved by a variety of trials. This is true. But they will ultimately end in praise. The life of faith ultimately ends in praise. So I ask that you'd, you'd stand with me while I read Psalm 150. Turn there, Psalm 150, the last psalm. I'll read all six verses and then I will be... Praying, our pastoral prayers, you may have noticed, are walking through the psalms. So this week our pastoral prayer uh, is, from psalm, is based on Psalm 24. But first, Psalm 150, verses 1 through 6. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. 
Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, what do we have that we did not receive from your hands? As the psalm tells us, the earth is yours in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So everything we have, life, breath, existence, an abundance of goods and delights, all from your hands. We thank you this morning for being our great provider. But Lord, we don't merely want to live in the world you manage, but we want to be in your presence. That's why we ask along with the psalmist, who shall ascend your hill? Who shall stand in your holy place? And you tell us, it's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false, the one who doesn't swear deceitfully, that's the one who will receive blessings from you. That's the one who will be in your presence. So, Lord, we pause for a moment to confess that that does not truly or fully describe us. We are not ones who've lived with clean hands and a pure heart, who've completely refrained from lifting up our souls to what is false or what is testimony. Lord, we've fallen short of this, each of us. We've all fallen short of this in many ways. So we confess that to you. We admit that on our own we cannot ascend your hill. We cannot be in your holy presence. That's why we thank you that you came to us when we couldn't come to you. The King of glory entered into humility into servanthood, into sacrifice so that we could be reconciled. And so as a psalmist asks, who is this King of glory? I praise you that we can answer. We know you. We're the ones who are near you, who walk with you. We can answer. This is the Lord, our Lord, who's strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, the King of glory. And we ask for your work here this morning that we may be near you as we are amongst your people, hearing your word in the fellowship of your spirit, Lord. May you be working. I I specifically pray for us as we enter. We're still early in this year, 2024, and what will be a great theme of this election year. There's going to be many, many things and people calling for our attention for our allegiance, for our anxiety. So, Lord, protect your people. Make us anxious for one thing, for King Jesus, for his kingdom, for his righteousness. So protect your sheep, Lord. Guard us by faith, by the ability to hear your word. Grant that even this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated.
Well, the, as we read through those six verses in Psalm 150, I think the clear purpose of the psalm uh, it isn't hard to figure out. This is a psalm that wants to draw us into praise of the Lord. Right? How does it begin? Praise the Lord. How did it end? Praise the Lord. What word is repeated 13 times in this psalm? Praise, 13 times. This is a call to praise. It it gives us voice as we praise. And what we're going to find out that this psalm does is it shuts down every, every excuse we may have for not praising the Lord. This psalm will not allow us to plead ignorance as to where the Lord should be praised. We cannot pretend after reading this psalm that we don't know why we should praise the Lord or how we should praise Him. We can't claim ignorance uh, that we didn't know who should praise Him by the time we're working through this psalm. Right? All of these questions will be answered in these six short verses. So we're just be un- begin unpacking those questions one by one. First question we're going to try and answer, where should we praise him. Where should we praise the Lord? Verse 1 of this psalm gives us our answer. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So the quick answer, if you're kind of jotting that down, if you're trying to answer the quiz, is where do we praise him? In his sanctuary, in his mighty heavens. Well, maybe you want a little bit more explanation. What exactly is being said there? Is this an example of the the parallelism you will find in a lot of psalms, right? Hebrew poetry often works with what's called parallelism. It's pretty much a similar or same concept being repeated in two slightly different ways. We might say, the Lord is almighty. The Lord is our rock. That's parallelism. Saying pretty much the same thing, but getting at it with two different wordings. Almighty, our rock. Is that what's being said here in his sanctuary, in his mighty heavens? Kind of, but there's a little more to it. What we're being told here is praise him in his earthly temple. That's the sanctuary. And praise him in his mighty, in, in his heavenly temple. That's the mighty heavens. Your translations might have a footnote or even say his mighty expanse, right? So his sanctuary down, there, down here, his sanctuary up here. His sanctuary, that's his holy place. That's the place that God, in the Old Testament, chose for his people to meet and worship him on earth. Right? In the Old Testament era, this was the tabernacle and eventually the temple in Jerusalem. You'd say, what city is his temple in? You'd had an answer. It's in Jerusalem. But that sanctuary, that temple, was actually understood to reflect the full worship constantly taking place in heaven. The the temple was meant to reflect the full, perfect worship happening in heaven. Like like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so that earthly temple is meant to reflect that heavenly worship. What this psalm is saying is that worship right here, right now, even in this room we call our sanctuary, should reflect the worship perfectly happening continuously by the angels in the heavenly realm. But this, is a, this psalm isn't just talking about what's happening in the Jerusalem temple or even in this room right here, which we've come to call our sanctuary. No, this is a call to praise God everywhere. This psalm is really saying praise God from top to bottom. Praise him from A to Z. 
Praise him from Albuquerque to Zanzibar. In this sanctuary and in your kitchen. That's where he should be praised. Because one of the Lord's purposes in sending his son was so that worship in his special presence wouldn't just be a Jerusalem temple thing. It wasn't just what happened on that there in Mount Zion, as they call it. It was so that worship would happen in the fullness of all of these places. This room here in Sioux Falls, your kitchen a couple miles away from here, Sioux Falls or Zion. We see Jesus teach on this when he has that meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. You're familiar with this story, I'm sure. The Samaritan woman is kind of, even through conversation, realizing like, oh, this Jesus guy, this guy who I'm talking to, he knows something. Uh, he, he, I can ask him some theological questions. She hasn't completely figured out who he is yet, but she knows he's got some spiritual knowledge. So in John 4, verse 19, the woman, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so she says, this is the time to ask him about which mountain is the right place to worship, which sanctuary is the best sanctuary. She goes, our fathers, that is the Samaritan fathers, worshipped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem, you know, Jesus being a Jew, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus gives her his answer. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I mean, essentially, what's Jesus' answer? An hour is coming when your question on which mountain will be irrelevant. Right? True worshipers we'll be able to worship in spirit and truth, not on the right mountain, but wherever they are, even in an amazing place like Sioux Falls. Right. So think about this. I mean, so think about that, that, that. Think about that, even how it applies to our gatherings here. These gatherings on Sunday are incredibly important. Praise is especially fitting when it comes from this regular, intentional, we could even say sacred gathering of God's people in this room. It's a significant thing. Don't underplay that. But neither should we limit God's praise to what happens in this room, this building, or this day. Our mindset is much more like what Paul calls us to in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, this is what Paul writes, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Where does Paul think we can give a sacrifice of praise? Wherever our bodies are. That's our calling of people who've been indwelt by the Spirit. Worship Him in spirit and truth wherever you are. This is our calling. So where should we praise him? Everywhere. Okay. Well, then why should we praise him? 
verse 2 gives us a very clear answer for that. Why should we praise him? Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Why should we praise him? For his mighty deeds, for his excellent greatness. We might summarize this as praise God for his actions, his mighty deeds, and praise God for his essence, his excellent greatness. Praise God for what he's done and what he's doing and what he promises to do, his mighty deeds. And praise him for who he is, his excellent greatness. I love the way Psalm 119.68 just so succinctly summarizes these kind of two categories for praising God. It really does summarize all that's praiseworthy about him. Psalm 119 verse 68 simply says, You are good and you do good. God, you are good and you do good. That summarizes it all right there. All of his mighty deeds, all of his excellent greatness. You are good and you do good. I mean, these two categories are just a treasure for the Christian. As we try and meditate on God, on his goodness, on his greatness, on his praiseworthiness, these two categories, who he is and what he does, his mighty deeds and his excellent greatness, I tend to see these as like handholds and footholds to, to help us scale the unscalable mountain that is God. God, in his essence, who he is, right? We can never fully comprehend as creatures who he is. But these categories, who he is, what he's done, allow us to start. The word I might use is apprehend him. Now you may, that may sound weird to your ears. Wait, is this how we apprehend God? Isn't apprehend a word you normally use like about a criminal? Like, aha, we apprehended the criminal. But that's not the only real meaning of that word. That's not a, the older, more traditional meaning of that word. Traditionally, there was a, a distinction that could be made between comprehension and apprehension. Right? You probably even hear it in the words apprehension, comprehension. Comprehension means we have comprehensive or complete knowledge. Again, that's not always how we use that word nowadays, but in this traditional distinction, right? Comprehend, if comprehend something means you've got, you've got your mental arms all the way around it. Apprehend is a little, little humbler. Apprehend is genuine knowledge. You've got, you can grab onto it, but it's not comprehensive. Right? True knowledge, but admittingly not complete. Our minds can't hold in at once all that God is, but these little tracks, these handholds. God is good. God does good. They give us things to hold on to as we ponder his nature and his character and his acts. I mean, just think on his excellent greatness for a while. Let's just pause and do this. Who is God? In what way is he good? Just in and of himself, in his essence. This is not a question we're about to answer exhaustively, just to set expectations in the right place. But grab a hand, just grab hold of this handhold for a moment. 
We can think of who he is in his essence. He is, the Bible tells us, holy. Right? Altogether separate and pure. Just in and of himself. If, if creation never existed and it was just God existing in eternity, he'd still be holy. He'd still be as uh, Isaiah heard the uh, seraphim proclaiming in Isaiah 6 as he got this vision of the heavenly throne room. What were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Not just holy, like thrice holy. Like holy, holier, holiest. God, in and of himself, is just holy. He's other, separate, and pure. Ponder that for a while. The Bible also tells us God, just again, in and of himself, apart from a creation ever existing, is self-sufficient. Of the way this is put in Psalm 36.9, it simply says, For with you, talking of the Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Right? God is the fountain of life. Right? He has no source outside of himself, but he is the source of all things. He is self-sufficient. Think, all of us have a source outside of ourselves, right? Outside yourself, right? We all have mothers, who had mothers, who had mothers, who had mothers. Right? It's an amazing thing to be, to be a mother. Impressive thing. Wow, you brought life into this world. But the only reason you're able to do that is because someone else brought you into this world. And the only reason they could do that is because someone else brought them into this world. You get the picture. I'm not going to go back too far. God has no source that he's dependent on like that. He is himself the fountain of life. He's self-sufficient. Going back to Isaiah, he tells us that the Lord is everlasting. Right? He has no beginning. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Everything else has a beginning. God has no beginning. Everything else has limits. Everything else will decay. God has no limits. He does not faint or grow weary. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. We praise him for his mighty deeds. Again, we can grab onto this handhold, just ponder this for a while, climb up this way for a bit. What does God do? What are his praiseworthy acts? Well, the Bible starts off telling us he's creator, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God... Apparently, the everlasting God who is there from the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The psalm tells us he spoke and they came to be. That's what Isaiah 48 told us, right? The everlasting God is the creator of the ends of the earth. So you've ever been amazed or in awe of creation, a little slice of it? Praise goes to its creator, to our God. He's creator He's also sustainer. One of his mighty acts is sustaining this creation he makes day after day. Think of what Paul tells the Athenians in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. It begins by talking about God as the creator. Acts 17, 24. He's telling them the God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Again, he's self-sufficient. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's the fountain of life. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What are God's mighty acts? He created us. He sustains us day by day. We even praise him for his mighty deed as being our redeemer. I like the way this is summarized in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. If you're coming down to the Sunday school classes meeting downstairs in room 109, we'll dig into this passage a little bit more. So that let's just whet your appetite for it. I'll just read how God is our redeemer from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. As Paul writes, that when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son. Right? We've got this double sending for redemption that God does. Praise him for his mighty acts. He has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He's created us. He's sustained us. He's redeemed a people to be his. What should we praise him for? Everything. His mighty, de- mighty deeds and his excellent greatness. All right, so maybe you're amped and ready to go now. You know where you should praise him. You know why you should praise him. So we have the question, how should we praise him? Question three, how should we praise him? Again, our psalm gives a nice clear answer. Verses three, four, and five. Praise him. With trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Now, before we dig into this point, there's a deep, reoccurring, and therefore incredibly important biblical truth we need to be reminded of. That deep, Reoccurring and incredibly important biblical truth is that God looks on the heart. I love the way this is put in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when Samuel has is is been commissioned to anoint uh, God's chosen king and he's assessing Jesse's sons. And the Lord said to Samuel there in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is an important, reoccurring, deep biblical truth. And because of that, we know, therefore, that that merely external worship and merely external or going through the motions, devotion to God, isn't just meaningless, It's downright sinister. And the reason I say that is because of what Jesus said. He said this to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 27, what does he say? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Right? Their devotion to God outwardly was pretty good. 
but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we know, we know that worship is not just singing or playing music or saying certain things. But don't mistake that truth to that truth for this falsity. True worship and devotion are merely internal things. Things of the heart don't show themselves in outward actions. Don't don't veer over into that falsehood. Right? This psalm makes it clear that true worship, worship from the heart, is going to show itself in vocalized praise. It is going to make sound waves. Right? You could grab a tape recorder and record true praise. Right? It's going to be able to be, get caught on film, caught on tape. It has a tangible existence. What this is telling us is that this, the Lord is to be worshipped, the Lord is to be praised in every way. Whatever instrument you have on hand, that's essentially what this catalog is saying. Whatever instrument you have on hand, that's what you should praise the Lord with. Make a noise, be exuberant about it. If you're going to go through this list of instruments and ways of praising in verses 3, 4, and 5, you're going to realize that there's not a lot of rhyme and reason to the instruments listed. Some of these were what would be called traditional temple instruments, one you'd expect to find there in the Old Testament in the temple. Some were more what we might call folk instruments, one you'd expect to find you know, just out amongst the common folk. If we wanted to translate it into our frame of reference, it's as if he said, praise the Lord with everything from pipe organs to bucket drums. Right? Praise the Lord with everything from the worship team to singing along to a CD in your car. Some of these are stately. Some of these are less so. Some of these are loud. Some of these are more reverent. Right? The point is that the Lord is to be praised from the mouths, from the hands, from the bodies of those whose hearts are devoted to him. Right? We're to bring God everything we have in praise. A heart that wants to praise is going to do it through its hands and its mouth and its feet, through its whole body. There is no, as one song puts it, there's no orchestra to, there's no, no song is too loud, no orchestra too stately. It all needs to get called upon to worship the Lord. And I think I have proof of that with the CD I brought as my, uh, my uh, visual aid here this week. I had to go into my CD collection here and pick out this gem. This CD here, uh, the name of this album is Scaleluia. Yes, I said Scaleluia. This might need some explanation. In my youth, 
as a CD-buying teenager in the mid-late 90s, there was a genre, a sub-genre of music that had a moment. It was called ska. Um, it was really popular, again, for like a moment. And I was, I was all in. Me and my friends, we were all in on ska. Uh, what is ska? It, it is just sort of, at least in the 90s, ska was a sort of generally peppy and faster style, featured horns, right? A lot of kids that had always wanted to be in a band but only played the saxophone or trombone or trumpet were suddenly finding a place for themselves. Uh, they could join a ska band. Um, but generally, kind of this emphasis on the, uh, on the backbeat, like, boom, ba, ba, um, ba, um, ba. Right, I'm not going to try and do ska here for you, right? Like faster reggae with horns and a little bit poppier. Um, and ska doesn't, I've, I've, I've come to learn, ska doesn't have a great reputation nowadays. Saying I was into ska when I was young is like, if my parents were like, I was super into disco. You're just kind of like, oh, okay. Right? It's, it's this sort of like polka, techno, there's super, certain genres of music it's not like you sing it from the rooftops that you're all in on that. Uh, I've actually heard Ska described as what goes on in a 13-year-old boy's head when he finds out he can have more mozzarella sticks. <laughs> that's, and that, like that, that nailed it. That's, that's it. Uh, so not surprisingly, in the 90s, Ska having a moment, there were Christian Ska bands. Uh, there were three big ones, and one of the big Christian Ska bands is featured on this CD here, The Insiders. Insiders being spelled I-N-S-Y-D-E-R-Z, just because that's how you do it in ska. Um, but this album's called Skalleluja, and it's a worship, it's a ska version of a bunch of worship songs. So you're going to have on here track one, you're probably uh, familiar with this song, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful, ska version. Uh, track three, Awesome God, ska version. Uh, you know some of these. Track seven, You Are My All in All. And Ska version. There's, there's more of these. I could go, Jesus, I lift your name, or Lord, I lift your name on high. Uh, so we've got familiar praise songs to uh, the Ska instrumentation. And so the question, especially, you know, my friend's church, they had a, they had a youth band, and the question was, um, could this style and form of music actually be honoring to God? Could it be worship music? I mean, it's admittedly a youth-oriented, fast-paced, loud music. Could the Lord genuinely be worshipped by the insiders and those at their concert? What does Psalm 150 say? Not as what does your preference for ska say. What does Psalm 150 say? Yeah. Yeah. Praise him with what you got. Ska music, polka music, techno music, hymns on a pipe organ, Gregorian chant, hip-hop, tuvan throat singing, even contemporary worship music. Bring it all together to praise God. Now, as a little caveat, I'll admit, this wouldn't make great congregational worship music. There's other factors that the worship teams consider of how to have this group of, a diverse group of people actually be able to sing together. But when me and my friends were at the ska shows, dancing like we would, right? Singing, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Was that subpar worship? Not according to Psalm 150. So that leads us to our fourth point, which we'll go through pretty quickly here, is who should praise him? We'll go through it quickly because it's so straightforward in our text. 
verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath. Could we say it more expansively than that? Right? It's, not just, it's not just the angels around the throne in heaven. It's not just priests or, or worship leaders. It's not those who just particularly jive with the worship set this morning. Everything that has breath. I mean, Psalm 148 really draws this out. It says in verse 2, Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. It goes on to even say, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Verse 7 of Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures. Blue whales, giant squids, axolotls. Praise him. Fire, hail, snow. Stormy wind, all of that. Step outside, all there, fulfilling his word to praise him. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things, flying birds, kings of the earth, all peoples, princes, and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, all of these are to praise the Lord. If you did not fall into any of these categories, stand up. Everyone and everything that has received breath, has received life from the fountain of life, has received existence from the eternally existent one, were to use our life and breath and our existence to praise him. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia. So where should we praise him? Everywhere. Why should we praise him? For everything. How should we praise him? In every way. Who should praise him? Everyone. And so we come to our fifth question. When will we praise him? This is where I don't want you to finish, you know, get too ahead of yourself on your quiz. You're like, oh, I figured this all out. Because you might expect, expect the answer to be, when will we praise him? Every moment, right? There's been every's and every other answer so far. And that's, that's kind of true. It's kind of true that the answer is every moment. We are called to praise him. Again, giving our whole lives as a sacrifice of praise. But when will we praise him? The fact of the matter is, right now, praise is not our only prayer. It's our destination, going back to the airport imagery from earlier. It is our destination. That's why this psalm, Psalm 150, is the carefully chosen last psalm. It makes it clear that we are heading to a prayer of praise. But the psalms also make it clear that many of our prayers between now and then will not be praise. They'll all end up in praise. Every prayer, prayed long enough, as it's been said, will end up in praise. But they will not Begin there. Now, that's why the Psalms contain so many other types of praise. Maybe if you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, you think Psalm 150 is a lot like most of them. They're all just kind of peppy, uh, you know, praise him, praise him, thank you, God, praise him. It's kind of a shiny, smiley book. But that's not the case at all. 
The book of Psalms is deeply aware of the valleys, the twists and turns, the disappointments, the dangers that we walk through in life. If the Psalms as a whole book are a fitting soundtrack to each of our spiritual lives, our walk of faith. And they're carefully structured to be both sympathetic to the variety of trials we go through, but also make it clear that praise is where we're going. It's our destination. The the Psalms are a carefully structured book. You may not have realized that before. Sometimes they just feel like you had 150 poems, you kind of just dumped them all out in a pile and you numbered them. It's like, all right, we got our 150 Psalms. Because they don't, they don't flow in the same way that maybe a narrative would flow. That, you know, 1 Samuel 7 is followed by 1 Samuel 8, which is followed by 1 Samuel 9. Like, there's a very important flow. You don't just get a mix-up 1 Samuel or Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2 clearly follows out of Ephesians 1, and Ephesians 3 clearly follows out of Ephesians 4. It'd be weird to kind of mix them up and reread them in a different order. And we feel like we can do that with the Psalms, that... They just kind of a, it's a grab bag of spiritual poems or prayers. But it's a carefully structured book. I mean, we see this in at least the fact that there's, there's, there's five books within the Psalms. Have you noticed this before? There's five books within the Psalms. Book one begins at well, the very beginning, at chapter one, and it goes through chapter 41, but if you're looking through your Psalms and you got to the front of Psalm 42 right before it, in mine, it's all capital letters. It says book two, and book two goes through Psalm 72, and all of a sudden right above Psalm 73, you have in all capital letters book three, and that goes through Psalm 89, and so right before Psalm 90 in all capital letters, I have book four, and that goes through Psalm 106, and so right above Psalm 107, I have in all capital letters, book 5. You see that it's, it's, it's broken down into these five books. And within these, they capture the full range of our prayers as we live by faith in communion with God. And all they, though they end in praise, they clearly don't begin there. Turn back with me to the beginning of the book of Psalms. Go back to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a, is a confident assertion of what is ultimate, right? Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, not his law he meditates day and night. That psalm stands as a banner over the whole book. But then we start walking through the book of Psalms. And we start realizing, wait, is the blessed man the man living at ease? Is a blessed man who's just kind of floating, the one who's floating above it all. Just, just singing praise and not really dragged down by any trials. Well, what's happening in Psalm 2? Psalm 2 starts out, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Whew. Okay, things took a little bit violent turn there. Let's keep reading. Let's get on to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, verse 1. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me, not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart and rend it in pieces with none to deliver. If you just read through the first seven psalms, how would you expect life to go? You'd be well aware that it is filled with trouble. If you were using the psalms to kind of guide your prayers to God as we do for our pastoral prayers week after week, what would your prayers be? Be ones fully aware that life is filled with trouble, that our prayers are ones of lament. good chunk of the Psalms, about a third of them are just lament. How long? They're prayers for, deliver- for deliverance. They're prayers of confession. There's thanksgiving and there's praise. But most of the Psalms are aware of our trouble. They give us voice through the, the various trials of life. As we pray through the psalms, it becomes a soundtrack of our spiritual lives. We are praying not just praise, but lament and confession. And we're asking for help and deliverance. And we're working through confusion. We will be praying those during our lives. Still, the psalms, our Bible, our Lord, wants us to know where, our, where we're going. We are going towards praise. If you looked at how each of those five books, right? I mentioned, you're like, why did Dan mention that there's five books in the Psalms? This is kind of a random thing to bring up here this late into a sermon. But if you noticed how each book ends, again, this carefully constructed book, many of them saying, how long and deliver me, O Lord. Each book ends with praise, like they're tending towards praise. Psalm 41.13, the last verse of book 1. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book 2, how does it end? Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Book 3, how does it end? Psalm 88 and 89 are about the darkest, deepest, saddest parts of the Psalter. But 89.52 says, just blessed be the Lord forever and amen. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, to end the fourth book, says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen, praise the Lord, and then really check this out. How do the last five Psalms finish? Not just the last one, but the last Five Psalms, Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150. We have ended book five with five Psalms of exuberant praise, right? Psalm 146 begins, praise the Lord. Psalm 147, praise the Lord. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Psalm 149, praise the Lord. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Finishes, praise the Lord. This point seems to be this. You will pray many prayers in your life. 
You are praying for health because it's not going well. You're praying about relationships, family and friends and neighbors because they are troubling. You're praying about circumstances and finances and just all sorts of other uncertainties because they're not going well. You're praying about rejection and opposition because it's there and it's growing. You're praying about personal sin, about the enemy within because it is there and just will not go away. You are praying about all of these things, but not forever. Psalm 150 wants us to see the life of faith in communion with God through many various trials, as Peter puts it. Thanks to the gracious work of our God of redeeming us in Jesus Christ that he came and suffered and he, he lived out the full darkness and depth of the Psalms, crying out on the cross, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can be wrapped into his life, that we wouldn't be forsaken, that our sins would be forgiven, so that we could be raised with him and given hope, so that no matter what variety of trials we are going through, we who cling to Christ by faith are on our way to praise. So, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful that we have hope. And we have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He died in our place so that we may be raised to life in him. What a gift. And because of this, we have a secure, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that you are guarding. So that we know that whatever trial our faith may take us through now, it will end in praise. It will end in delighting in you, in your goodness, in your glory. So sustain us and lead us along, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.